welcome to some very famous people you've never really heard of and may barely recognize. This podcast contains bite-sized biographies of the famous, the infamous, and the quirky, all presented in less than an hour. My name is Philip D. Gibbons, and there is more information about me, this podcast, and a bibliography at someveryfamouspeople.com. At the conclusion of this presentation, there will be additional suggestions concerning further information about today's subject. Heavyweight champion of the world, Jack Johnson. Now let's begin our story about Jack Johnson. Long before Muhammad Ali shocked the world, and three decades before Joe Lewis became a national icon, Jack Johnson was America's first African-American heavyweight champion. But unlike the humble Lewis or the charismatic Ali, who were able to transcend color barriers and achieve widespread popularity, Johnson remained feared and despised in a Jim Crow America that considered his ascendance a societal insult. Jack Johnson responded by living a life of defiance, both in and out of the ring. In an age where a prize fight between a white man and a black man was illegal in many states, Johnson spent years of baiting and taunting white boxers before getting a shot at the title. In a country where a mere glance at a white female from a black man could incite a lynching, Johnson flaunted such relationships and spent a considerable fortune on high living, fast cars, and even faster women. In the end, Johnson would pay dearly for such behavior, but his remarkable career and ascendance in the segregated society of the early 20th century today seems almost superhuman. Jack Johnson was born on March 31, 1878, in Galveston, Texas. Very little can be verified about his early life. Most historical information about him comes from autobiographies that he published himself. Had he not gone on to achieve boxing notoriety, both he and his family would have been completely forgotten. What is known is that his parents were former slaves, scratching out a living, working menial jobs in the harsh environment of the Deep South. Henry and Tiny Jackson had six children. Their first son, Arthur, was born in 1878 and would be nicknamed Jack. Henry Johnson remained poor, but he would acquire property and build his own house in one of the poorer sections of Galveston. All of his children received an education, and Jack Johnson's schoolmates and friends were frequently white, most likely something that would greatly affect his outlook as an adult, who did not see color as a distinction. Though the exact details are not known, Johnson's education ended after the sixth grade, and he did not attend high school. Instead, he would work at whatever odd job he could obtain and would also help his father, who was a janitor in a local school. At 16, Johnson was already six feet tall and physically powerful. He claims in his autobiographies to have stowed away to New York and bummed his way to Dallas, only to ultimately return to Galveston. His first exposure to boxing came through what was known as the Battle Royal, a deliberately demeaning debacle staging numerous black teenagers fighting each other with no rules until only one was left standing. The victor would receive pennies and nickels thrown into the ring by white spectators, who thoroughly enjoyed taunting and jeering the participants during the contest. From these bouts, Johnson would be impressive enough to start fighting professionally in small Galveston clubs. Although his autobiographies claim that he traveled all over the country, in truth he spent the latter half of the 1890s living in Galveston at the home of his family. He also claimed to have married a woman named Mary Austin, although the census still listed him as single throughout this period. 
boxing records from this era are both inaccurate and incomplete, but by 1899, Johnson was good enough to rise to the top of Galveston's club fighting circuit. Technically, prize fighting was illegal in Texas and many other states, but its presence, especially in non-public venues, was tolerated. Fights would be billed as exhibitions to get around the law. Boxing itself had gained national prominence with the rise of John L. Sullivan, the first official world heavyweight champion. Sullivan brought boxing out of its primitive bare-knuckle era, donning gloves and generating interest and popularity. The Boston Strong Boy publicly proclaimed that he would take on all comers, and by 1885, Sullivan was generally accepted as the heavyweight champion of the world. John L. was America's first sports celebrity and the first boxer to ingrain the perception of boxing's heavyweight champion as the world's most physically powerful man. The son of Irish immigrants, Sullivan was especially revered in the Irish-American community, a symbol for a group that was frequently the butt of ethnic slights and discrimination. He was the first professional athlete to earn over a million dollars, and his hard-drinking ways, habit of talking to the crowd while fighting, and larger-than-life persona kept him in the limelight. Sullivan would ultimately lose his fortune and his title to Gentleman Jim Corbett, but not before establishing the heavyweight champion as professional sports' most prestigious title. Unfortunately for Jack Johnson, John L. Sullivan also began another boxing tradition. When Sullivan frequently issued his challenge that he could lick any man in the house, he added the proviso that, I will not fight a Negro. I never have. I never shall. Not only was it impossible for a black man to even conceive of fighting for the heavyweight title, fights between blacks and whites were also unofficially discouraged throughout the sport. African Americans would typically fight each other and aspire to win something called the World Colored Heavyweight Championship. As if this occupational barrier wasn't enough, Johnson and his family would face another more daunting development that greatly affected the entire Galveston community. On Saturday, September 8, 1900, the deadliest hurricane in U.S. history struck Galveston with winds exceeding 140 miles per hour. Galveston was situated on a relatively flat island, so a 15-foot storm surge swept away most of the city's wooden buildings. Prior to the hurricane, its port and commerce made it one of Texas's largest and most prosperous cities. It is estimated that 8,000 people were killed by the storm, and virtually all of the city's structures were reduced to debris. The survivors, including Jack Johnson, spent the next few weeks digging bodies out of the wreckage. But the hurricane wiped out any potential boxing events, and Jack Johnson found it necessary to find opportunities elsewhere. A promoter in Memphis agreed to match Johnson against one Klondike Haynes, a fighter that Johnson had already unimpressively fought twice. This time, Johnson gave Klondike what he described as a lacing knocking him out in 14 rounds. The 22-year-old Johnson was paid $1,000 and returned to Galveston in search of a suitable opponent. He was already building a reputation as a talented boxer who had outgrown the local club fighters. Promoters went all the way to the city of Chicago and selected tough opposition in Joe Choinsky. Choinsky was an oddity like Johnson in that he was a Jew who frequently fought non-Jews to generate controversy and antagonism. He also was a very talented boxer who had battled the likes of John L. Sullivan, Jim Corbett, and Bob Fitzsimmons. But by 1900, Choinsky, 33 years old, seemed past his prime. He had recently been knocked out by contenders Kid McCoy, Joe Walcott, and Tom Sharkey. He looked like the perfect opponent for the up-and-coming Johnson. 
the boxers fought two spirited rounds that were even, but Choinsky used his experience in the third, feinting and then landing a hard right hand that knocked Johnson out with one punch. As was a frequent occurrence during tenuously legal boxing matches, local law enforcement chose this moment to enter the ring and arrest both participants. Texas Rangers dragged both men to the local jail and locked them in the same cell, where they were photographed, glumly looking through the bars. While a grand jury considered whether to charge the two combatants, a farce was played out where Johnson and Choinsky would leave jail at night, Johnson for his family home, and Choinsky for a hotel. During the day, both boxers would spar for the public, the old-timer teaching the newcomer the tricks of the trade. On March 8, 1901, the grand jury refused an indictment, and both men were released and advised that it might be a good idea if they left town before anybody else could figure out some other reason to detain them. Choinsky went back to Indiana. Johnson also left Galveston, this time for good. While he would return on occasion to see family members, he would never reside there again. Johnson gradually made his way to the West Coast, where boxing was already a popular sport. He fought sporadically in Bakersfield, Oakland, and by necessity back in Chicago and the East Coast, his bouts arranged by his Bakersfield manager, Frank Carrillo. Johnson was impressive enough to get a match against heavyweight champion Jim Jeffries' brother Jack. It would take place in Los Angeles's Hazards Pavilion, the largest venue of its kind, and it would attract L.A.'s largest fight crowd to date. With his brother in attendance, Jack Jeffries proved no match for Johnson, who knocked him out in five rounds. Johnson added to his reputation for flair by wearing shocking pink pajamas as boxing tights. His style, as well as his boxing ability, was starting to generate a reputation throughout the West. He fought 14 times in 1902, with a record of 11 wins, no losses, and three draws. Johnson was also developing a reputation outside of the ring as well. Spending time in the predominantly white town of Bakersfield and interacting with residents who expected a docile and humble submissive, Johnson quickly began to alienate the town's people with what was described as a swelled head. That he lived in the prosperous part of town also ruffled some feathers. Johnson responded typically by firing his manager, Carrillo, and heading to Los Angeles. There he would be matched against Denver Ed Martin for a title especially created in California boxing, the Negro Heavyweight Championship. The fight again took place before a large crowd at Hazard's Pavilion, and Johnson repeatedly knocked down Martin en route to a 20-round decision. For other black fighters, this was as good as it was going to get. But Johnson was already privately discussing his ambition to fight Jim Jeffries for the heavyweight championship of the world. After his former manager Carrillo attempted to legally harass Jack Johnson, the fighter again left California and headed for the East Coast. When he returned six months later, he began to publicly demand a fight with Jeffries. While this demand met with a typically racially-based refusal, the six-month hiatus had not chilled the various creditors who claimed that Johnson owed them money. The boxer's spendthrift ways and lack of attention to detail would frequently have him one step ahead of process servers and debt collectors for the rest of his boxing days. His typical response was to catch a train to some other city. Johnson would spend several years stuck in a frustrating rut of quality white fighters refusing to fight him and trying to make a living fighting the same black boxers he had already defeated. In response, he publicly ridiculed white boxers in the press and even challenged these fighters in person. One of them, Marvin Hart, took the bait and agreed to a fight after Johnson showed up at his gym and called him a coward. What followed was a controversial fight in which Johnson seemed more intent on embarrassing his opponent, outboxing him without inflicting any real damage. In the end, the referee awarded the fight to Hart, 
who clearly was the more aggressive boxer, especially in the later rounds of the 20-round fight. This outcome further minimized any opportunity for Johnson to fight Jeffries for the title. But the heavyweight champion went even further. He not only continued to refuse to fight Johnson, he retired from the sport. Many observers believe he did this to avoid Johnson and several other notable black contenders. Upon Jeffrey's retirement, promoters staged a heavyweight championship fight between Marvin Hart and another contender, Jack Root, which Hart won. But from this outcome, another boxing tradition grew. A boxing title, especially the heavyweight title, can only be won or lost in the ring. It cannot be awarded in any other fashion. Despite Jeffrey's role as the referee, the public was ambivalent about the outcome and never really accepted Hart. Sports writers openly questioned his refusal to fight Jack Johnson, stating that both Jeffries and Hart had previously fought black men and that Hart's refusal was due more to fear rather than principle. While Johnson may have been frustrated by his current career status, he certainly did not seem depressed. Around this time period, a Los Angeles Times newspaper reporter encountered the boxer on the streets and filed the following description. He was a towering figure in a waistcoat of green. The clothes that garmented the strolling colossus spoke emphatically. In place of wrinkles in his trousers, there were orderly creases, fresh from the tailor's iron. An inch from the boot, these creases stopped, allowing the stylish pantaloons to break smartly and set trimly on the kid-governed instep. The boots gleamed, not with the vulgar shine of blacking, but with the lustrous gloss of $7 patent leather, polished to the point of refraction. Stetson's latest block adorned the towering one's head, and against the ebony darkness of the Abyssinian's neck shone the whiteness of newly laundered linen. The high, modish collar found fashionable compliment in a scarf of ermine silk, knotted with perfect neatness and adorned with a diamond pin. From the magnificent shoulders fell in faultless lines a double-breasted coat, unbuttoned to show the vest of olive green. Afternoon gloves of pearl-gray suede were carried nonchalantly by a hand that bore on one of its chocolate-hued fingers a flashing gem of rather more carrots than one. The other hand swung languorously a cane of knobby choice. Clearly, Johnson must have been quite an impressive sight. At six foot two, 205 pounds, equivalent to 6'4", 216 today, he had reached his physical prime. Johnson stopped to speak to the writers, who asked what he had done with the money earned in beating Denver Ed Martin. Well, I've got about 200 of it left. I was mortgaged for 500 by the time the fight came off, training expenses mostly. Then I always liked the very finest clothes, and I generally wear them. So I bought some new togs, and I bought some new diamonds and gave them to my wife. I like diamonds, and so does she. And then if you're in my profession, you've always got to have your hand in your pocket when you meet the crowd in the bar. And all of them things counts way up, you know. A hundred a week won't near last a first-class boxing man. Johnson referred to whatever female who was living with him as his wife, despite the fact that he wasn't legally married until later in life. Unfortunately, despite his expensive lifestyle, Johnson spent most of 1906 and 1907 eking out a living fighting black fighters or lower-quality white fighters, like the former world heavyweight champion 45-year-old Bob Fitzsimmons, who Johnson knocked out in the second round. During this time period, Johnson fought the same black fighter, Joe Jeanette, six times, an indication of the scarcity of competition. But then he got some encouragement from another development within the heavyweight division. Marvin Hart would defend his heavyweight title against Tommy Burns, a smaller boxer who Hart figured he could easily beat. 
At five foot seven, 175 pounds, 20 pounds lighter than Hart, the fight looked like a mismatch. But Bounds was a much better boxer who kept Hart off balance and easily won a decision. Immediately, Burns surprisingly stated that he would fight any challenger, regardless of race, and he even personally referred to Jack Johnson by name, saying that he would eventually fight him after he gave some white boys a chance. But as time dragged on, no title shot presented itself. Burns first focused on fighting mediocre opponents, making as much easy money as possible. When he could no longer ignore demands, especially from the British press, to fight Johnson, he began demanding the wildly excessive and unheard of sum of $30,000. Perhaps he knew no matchmaker would meet that kind of demand. Johnson resorted to the tactic of publicly shaming Burns, first in London and then following him to France, when any plans to stage the fight in England fell through. Burns responded by fighting in Australia, knocking out two more inconsequential fighters and pocketing even more money. Ultimately, this Australian journey would provide Johnson the opportunity he was looking for. Burns' Australian fights had been promoted by a sharp operator named Hugh McIntosh. Between thousands of American sailors who would be present as a result of a flotilla of battleships sent on a world tour by President Teddy Roosevelt and Anglophile Australians, McIntosh figured that making money on boxing with Tommy Burns would be relatively easy. He paid Burns $20,000 for the two fights, hastily put together temporary outdoor arenas in both Sydney and Melbourne, and cleared $50,000 in profits. But the question of Jack Johnson hung over the entire process. McIntosh put together a syndicate of wealthy backers to come up with Burns's $30,000 fee. To lock in Johnson, he offered $5,000 and the elusive shot at the heavyweight title. Johnson and his current manager, Sam Fitzpatrick, were not happy taking such small payment relative to Burns, but they accepted the offer. Burns signed up as well, gladly accepting a sum of money that was unprecedented in boxing. The fight was on. Hugh McIntosh, with an eye towards the gate, played up the race angle, arranging interviews with both Mr. and Mrs. Burns, emphasizing the wholesome aspects of the champion. The mere fact that a black man was challenging a white man would have created a volatile public reaction, but Johnson was seen as especially insolent. Creating fake animosity between boxers is as old as boxing itself, but these two combatants genuinely disliked each other. Johnson for having to chase Burns around the world and for taking sizably less money, Burns for believing that Johnson was not appropriately grateful for a shot at the title. Even the choice of a referee became contentious when Johnson refused all of the names put forth, including Jim Jeffries. Ultimately, Johnson supposedly came up with the ingenious solution of demanding that Hugh McIntosh ref the fight, the challenger reasoning that anything that smacked of bias or a fix would not be in McIntosh's future promoting interest. The fight was to take place on December 26, 1908, Boxing Day in Sydney, Australia. It was scheduled at 11 o'clock, but the public was already lining up at 3 in the morning. 20,000 spectators were inside by morning. Another crowd estimated at 30,000 remained outside. It is alleged that when Johnson heard about the size of the crowd, he refused to fight without receiving more money up front, and McIntosh responded by threatening him with a revolver. Another dispute arose from Burns threatening to wear elastic bandages on his elbows, Johnson threatening a boycott until they were removed. They were. On his way into the ring, Johnson endured all manner of racial slurs and insults, but he remained calm and practically cheerful. He believed that he would have no trouble with Burns, and subsequent events proved him correct. From the first round on, when Johnson knocked Burns down, the fight was a completely one-sided affair. 
McIntosh also intended to make money by theatrically exhibiting film footage of the fight, a relatively new phenomenon, and some of this footage survives today. Johnson towers over Burns, who looks boyish by comparison, and at times Johnson can be seen mugging and smiling for the crowd. The film comes to an abrupt end in the 14th round, when the police shut off the cameras and stop the fight. With Johnson savaging a badly beaten Burns, the prearranged action prevented the embarrassment of Johnson knocking out the white champion. McIntosh declared Johnson the winner on points and the world's first black heavyweight champion. Johnson's victory was greeted in white America with emotions ranging from disappointment to a belief that it was the end of the white race and the beginning of an inevitable race war. No less an observer than Jack London, who had been hired by the New York Herald to cover the fight, opined subsequently, A golden smile tells the story, and that golden smile is Johnson's. But one thing now remains. Jim Jeffries must now emerge from his alfalfa farm and remove that golden smile from Jack Johnson's face. Jeff, it's up to you. The white man must be rescued. But for now, that was out of the question. Chain smoking and alcohol had ballooned Jeffries to over 300 pounds. Still, wherever the ex-champion went, the public asked and practically demanded that he fight Johnson. Another boxing tradition was born, the Great White Hope. Johnson returned to North America, arriving in Vancouver on March 9, 1909. There he proclaimed that he would fight anyone if the money was right. Johnson had hoped that the world was ready for a black heavyweight champion, but did himself no favors by arriving with a white woman he typically introduced as his wife. Most of the media coverage about his return centered on this development. Whether Johnson was even married was not the issue. Merely appearing in public in this fashion was shockingly provocative. Johnson didn't care and refused to keep this aspect of his life hidden or even private. The next night he fought a six-round exhibition that would be completely forgettable, save for the identity of the opponent, a young man by the name of Victor McLaughlin. Johnson would chivalrously carry McLaughlin, who would eventually quit boxing and enjoy more success as an actor, winning an Academy Award for the 1936 film The Informer and starring opposite John Wayne in The Quiet Man, among many other films. Initially, the city of Galveston announced that they would stage a celebration in Johnson's honor. Ultimately, they would cancel the party, and the state of Texas would threaten to prosecute him if he entered the state with his white wife. Interracial marriage was literally illegal in 30 of the then 46 states. Johnson sent the woman, Hattie McClay, to her hometown in Milwaukee and holed up in Chicago, waiting for the whole scandal to blow over. There he pursued the high life to the fullest, not only engaging white prostitutes, but also drinking heavily. His next fight in May of 1909 with former light heavyweight champion Jack O'Brien was strictly a payday that an unfit Johnson won on points. Similarly, dull efforts in his next two fights diminished his popularity. Finally, Johnson signed to fight the most dangerous and high-profile contender in the country, Stanley Ketchell. Stanislas Kitchell, a.k.a. Stanley Ketchell, had a fearsome reputation. Ketchell was from Grand Rapids, Michigan, the son of Polish immigrants. Clearly, Stanley grew up in a tough neighborhood, spent little time in school, and ran away from home when he was 12. He lived a hobo existence, occasionally scrounging menial labor in whatever part of the country he could manage it. At the age of 16, he was hired as a saloon bouncer and established a reputation as a tough kid. Very quickly, he began fighting professionally throughout the state of Montana. By 1908, he was the self-proclaimed middleweight champion of the world. If a reputation for toughness was the only qualification for a shot at Jack Johnson's title, Ketchell would have been first in line. 
but the public was unlikely to get enthusiastic about a match with an underdog who was four inches shorter and 30 pounds lighter than the formidable Johnson. Ketchell was handled by the crafty manager, Willis Britt, who went to great lengths to put the fight together. He had Ketchell spar with overmatched heavyweights, the press crowing excitedly when these men repeatedly were knocked to the canvas. He had Johnson and Ketchell photographed with the smaller man wearing a specially padded top coat and generously heeled cowboy boots that made the challenger seem about the same size as the champion. Most importantly, he secretly met with Johnson and got the champion to agree to carry Ketchell in an October 16, 1909 Northern California fight that was choreographed to take advantage of lucrative post-fight film exhibitions and the money this would generate. The longer that the white underdog could last, the more enthusiastic the film-going public would be. Johnson himself later claimed that he had agreed to allow Ketchell to make it into the later rounds. Through 11 rounds, Ketchell and Johnson did little damage to each other, but then Ketchell seemed to deviate from the plan. Perhaps he and his manager meant to double-cross the champion. Some maintain that even this part of the fight was previously arranged. In any event, Ketchell caught Jack Johnson with a hard right hand that knocked the champion to the canvas. Fighting listlessly up to this point, Johnson got up and hit the smaller Ketchell so hard that both men fell to the canvas. Stanley Ketchell was counted out and remained unconscious for two and a half minutes. He had been hit so hard that some of his teeth were embedded in the black champion's glove. Footage from the fight still exists, the poor quality unable to detract from Jack Johnson's ferocious knockout. Willis Britt would drop dead 12 days after the fight, and Ketchell, who had quite a reputation as a womanizer, would be shot to death in 1910 at age 24 in a mysterious Missouri incident involving a jealous ranch hand. Since Ketchell was the only active boxer to conceivably have any potential to defeat Johnson, the public pressure on ex-champion Jeffries to return to the ring became extreme. He relented quickly. In October 1909, Jeffries and Johnson met in a banquet hall in a New York City hotel and signed contracts to fight on July 4, 1910, for the heavyweight championship of the world. This was merely the first act in what would become the most anticipated and publicized sporting event in U.S. history. Racial antagonism had been fueled by a photograph taken at the conclusion of the Ketchell fight. With Jack Johnson towering over his unconscious opponent, the Caucasian crowd behind him registered shock, anger, and dismay. Only the face of one black man is visible, clearly enjoying the outcome. The white American public immediately began to anticipate the moment that Jeff would knock the smile off of his face. Within days of signing the contract, Jack Johnson would attend Long Island's Vanderbilt Cup auto race, although he would be barred from the finish line reviewing stand where he was told that no blacks were allowed. He would meet Mrs. Etta Terry Durier, an elegant, very attractive Caucasian female currently separated from her socially well-connected husband. Mrs. Durier was clearly a cut above the usual women in Johnson's entourage. While the two promised to keep in touch, Johnson spent the interim between his fight with Jeffries on a vaudeville tour of the Midwest and Northeast. He would also make the acquaintance of George Lewis Tex Rickard. Tex Rickard had made money in the Yukon, not by mining, but by opening casinos to cash in on the miners who willfully gambled their money away. He followed another mining boom to Goldfield, Nevada, opening an even more lavish and profitable establishment. Rickard understood the fundamentals of promotion and used this skill to bring a prominent 1906 lightweight championship fight to Goldfield. He lavished money and hospitality on numerous newspapermen, assuring that they would promote his fight, which was an unqualified success. Another aspect about the fight was notable. One opponent was white, the other black, which also generated a great deal of electricity. 
Rickard had learned a valuable lesson and immediately began attempting to make a deal to promote the Jeffries-Johnson fight. By offering an unprecedented $101,000 purse, immediate cash payments to both fighters, and two-thirds of the film revenue, Rickard secured the rights to stage what was already being billed as the fight of the century. Rickard picked San Francisco as the site of the fight and immediately began to erect a temporary 30,000-seat arena in the center of the city. As part of the outrageous publicity campaigns he would become famous for, Rickard began attempts at recruiting a celebrity referee ranging from Arthur Conan Doyle to Theodore Roosevelt. They all politely declined, although Teddy mentioned that he was looking forward to seeing the fight. Rumors also began to circulate that Johnson would be highly motivated to throw the fight because any film footage involving a victory over Jeffries would be of no interest to predominantly white viewers. In April, Jeffries, out of the ring for close to six years, began the arduous task of training to get in shape for a powerful opponent. Johnson relocated to San Francisco to begin the same process. A disastrously timed death of a prize fighter in San Francisco at the end of April could not have come at a worse time for Tex Rickard. In the progressive atmosphere in turn-of-the-century America, boxing was perceived by some as a brutal sport involving poor immigrants and blacks that encouraged gambling and alcohol abuse, a throwback to a previously uncivilized era. An undercurrent of suspicion that the fight was fixed was frequently repeated, the prevailing wisdom that Johnson knew that white America would not tolerate a victory over the perceived legitimate white heavyweight champion, and that he might not even make it out of the ring alive. As publicity for the fight began to reach a fever pitch in June, the governor of California, James Gillette, suddenly refused to allow the fight to take place. Behind the scenes, he had been pressured by national politicians who warned that San Francisco would be excluded from the upcoming selection as the site of the 1915 Panama Exposition if the fight took place. With three weeks to go, Tex Rickard was forced to scramble to find a new location. Already having solid connections in Nevada, he figured that this was his best option on short notice. After the governor of the state got assurances that the fight was not fixed, he gave his approval. The town fathers of Goldfield, thinking that Rickard had already promoted a fight and made a living in their town, believed that they were likely to get the match. But Rickard focused on business and not sentiment, and he went with Reno. The town was a railroad junction that would easily bring in fans from all over the country. Although Reno still only had about 11,000 residents, Rickard would soon make the town the center of a national focus. Hundreds of journalists and thousands of fight fans soon descended upon the remote western town. One of them, the ubiquitous Jack London, would capture the excitement of the moment. No man who loves the fighting game has the price and is within striking distance of Reno should miss the fight. There has never been anything like it in the history of the ring. Even if no more stringent legislation is passed against the game, even if every state threw itself wide open to prize fighting, still, there can be nothing like this fight for a generation to come. From the moment he arrived in Reno, it was clear that the weight of carrying the mantle of the white race was having an effect on Jeffries. His camp was surrounded by a picket fence and signs telling visitors to keep out. Jeffries ignored the throngs that gathered to try and merely catch sight of the former champion and refused to meet with celebrities eager for an audience. By contrast, Johnson's camp was headquartered in a raucous roadhouse with easy access to the champion. A party atmosphere prevailed, which underlined Johnson's extreme confidence. Jeffries began to admit the public to daily workouts that illustrated that he was in excellent condition. 
and his two-to-one betting advantage underline the conventional wisdom that a black man wouldn't stand a chance against any legitimate and undefeated white heavyweight champion, especially this one. Virtually every boxing personality picked Jeffries to win easily. On July 4, 1910, thousands of eager spectators began to make their way from the center of town to the makeshift wooden arena on the outskirts of Reno. Rickard was astute enough to post armed guards who seized alcohol and stopped any attempts at bringing guns into the venue. 20,000 spectators would eventually make their way into bleacher seating in the midst of what was described as a pine pit. In the middle of this structure was a 22-foot boxing ring with a canvas floor painted red to negate the blinding rays of the unimpeded sun. Tex Rickard solved the issue of a referee by handling the responsibility himself. There were none of the typical preliminary bouts. Instead, a band played songs like America and Dixie, inducing an atmosphere of ardent patriotism. Next, a seemingly endless round of introductions of boxers and celebrities until the crowd restlessly began to shout for the fighters. Edda Dorier chose this point to make her way to her sixth row seat, her proximity to the ring underlining that her relationship with Johnson had certainly progressed. Finally, at 2.30, the combatants entered the arena, Johnson to the expected catcalls, racist insults, and even a small amount of encouragement, probably from those who had bet on him, and Jeffries to a sustained roar that was described by one journalist as the first blood cry of the thousands. Jeffries was accompanied by his second, former champion Jim Corbett, who led the way. Jeffries stripped down to his boxing trunks and continued to glare at Johnson, who remained smiling and unaffected. At six feet, 227 pounds, Jeffries was much more physically formidable and intimidating than Tommy Burns. He outweighed Johnson by 20 pounds and attempted to use this weight to grapple and push the champion around the ring. Nothing much transpired in the early rounds, but when Jeffries landed a strong body shot in the fourth round and cut Johnson inside the mouth, the news was cabled from the ring and sent to crowds following the fight in squares and plazas from coast to coast. In New York's Times Square, a crowd following the match via billboard cheered for half a minute. It seemed that everything was proceeding according to plan. But Johnson had already taken Jeffrey's best punches, and his speed in the hot sun began to affect the challenger. The next four rounds were all Johnson, and by round nine, Jeffries was badly cut and one eye was closed. His six-year absence had robbed him of the skill and agility that had made him a world champion. As the fight continued, it became more and more one-sided, the inevitable outcome frustrating Jim Corbett into storming along the ring apron, shouting insults at Johnson. The champion responded by pushing Jeffries towards Corbett's corner and asking, Where do you want me to put him, Mr. Corbett? He could feel Jeffries' strength and endurance ebbing with every round. The noise of the crowd had gone from raucous cheering to individual shouts of nervous concern. By the end of the 14th round, Jeffries could barely see. His nose was broken and face and upper body streaked with his own blood. He lumbered gamely toward Johnson at the beginning of the 15th round, attempting to clinch but was too exhausted to avoid Johnson's repetitive combinations. Finally, perhaps attempting to avoid punishment, Jeffries turned away from Johnson and lurched awkwardly along the ropes. Johnson responded with a string of rights and lefts that put Jeffries on the canvas for the first time in his pro career. The stunned crowd watched as Jeffries got to his feet, literally with the help of spectators, but was immediately knocked down by a more direct punch that put him back on the canvas. Boxing rules at that time allowed a fighter to stand over a fallen opponent and hit him as soon as he got up. Rickard attempted to shield Jeffries for a brief moment, but when the defenseless fighter staggered to his feet, Johnson draped him on the ropes with another succession of brutal punches. Jeffries' cornermen stormed into the ring, 
One tossed a towel in Jeffrey's direction. The fight was over. Johnson's entourage attempted to surround the champion to prevent any vengeful fans from attacking him, but Jack was too happy to be restrained. He wanted to shake the hand of the loser, but was prevented access while Jeffries dejectedly left the ring. A bewildered, gloomy crowd emptied out behind him. Johnson quickly left town by train for Chicago, but not before picking up winnings totaling $121,000, an inconceivable amount of money for a black man. Although African Americans around the country were jubilant over Johnson's transcendental victory, violence inflicted by mobs of angry whites would kill dozens and injure hundreds of black people in spontaneous rioting around the United States, ironically on July 4th, Independence Day. Johnson's victory propelled him to even greater heights of celebrity. He would spend the rest of the summer performing a kind of boxing vaudeville act in a succession of one-night stands across the Northeast and Midwest. While initially content with only editorier, the tour would soon be joined by Belle Schreiber, a prostitute who had formerly enjoyed the status of being one of Johnson's alleged wives. The interaction of this romantic triangle would be far more dramatic than anything that occurred on the stage. Johnson attempted to placate both women with expensive gifts and money, but Schreiber ultimately refused to accept her secondary status and left the boxer's entourage. But she would keep in contact with Johnson. He would occasionally wire her money, and eventually she persuaded him to finance her brothel in Chicago in October of 1910. Schreiber momentarily placated. Johnson turned his attention back to Editorier. Not all of it good. Clearly irritated by Johnson's repeated infidelity, she seems to have entered into a relationship with Johnson's chauffeur, which Johnson suspected and responded by attacking her physically. While all parties denied that this had occurred, Etta was admitted to a hospital and still had visible facial bruises weeks later. Somehow the two would reconcile, and on January 18, 1911, they were quietly but legally married in Pittsburgh, a development that horrified both Johnson's mother and the Dorier family. Johnson's newfound status and cavalier attitudes about speed limits finally got him jailed for 18 days in San Francisco, where Johnson had supposedly gone to get away from the distractions of Chicago. He would return to Illinois two months later and immediately spend so much time at Bell Schreiber's establishment that the landlord would eventually evict her back into unemployment. She left town and headed for Washington, D.C. Johnson decided he needed to go even further to avoid police harassment and didn't think anyone in the U.S. would pay to watch him box any of the potentially inferior opponents. He decided that a trip to Europe might uncover some new opportunities and also improve his relationship with Etta. They sailed for England in June of 1911. It didn't work out. Johnson signed for a fight in October, but his domestic squabbling grew so bad that Dorier began to threaten suicide especially when Johnson decided that he wanted to go to Paris, a city known worldwide for its lascivious temptation that Etta knew Johnson would enthusiastically pursue. They went anyway. In late September, Johnson returned to England to begin serious training for his fight with one Bombardier Wells. But the fight would never come off. Despite the popularity of boxing and even the precedent of blacks boxing against whites, protests from religious circles, upper-class racist resentment of Johnson personally, and the eventual opposition of Home Secretary Winston Churchill doomed the fight that was legally canceled by the high court itself. Johnson's dream of fighting internationally disappeared, and he returned home. Broke, he signed for a fight on July 4, 1912, in Reno against fireman Jim Flynn. Problems were also mounting in Johnson's personal life. Although he had avoided any widespread publicity over his marriage to Editorier, 
The press got wind of it in February of 1912 and raised eyebrows with their description of the attractive, high-society woman and her scandalous union with Johnson. They also asked questions in print about Johnson's previous marriages and how any of this could even be legal. Etta's father had already died in January, making good on his vow to never speak to her again following her marriage. Even the federal government got involved when Johnson bragged about an ostentatious diamond necklace of Etta's that he had smuggled through customs. The Secret Service personally informed him of his impending arraignment in front of a customs commissioner set later for that summer. The extent of Johnson's notoriety was underlined when New York's boxing commissioner refused to allow the Flynn fight to take place in Madison Square Garden and vowed that Johnson would never fight in the state as long as the commissioner had any say in the matter. That promoters had to go all the way to Las Vegas, New Mexico to stage the match indicated the level of hostility in official boxing circles to Johnson. The fight was a disaster on every level. Although an 18,000-seat arena was erected, only 4,000 spectators showed up to the remote southwestern event. Johnson was 25 pounds heavier than when he fought Jeffries, and one reporter described his stomach as resembling an inflated bass drum. Promotional attempts to burnish Flynn as a legitimate white hope proved laughable, and after Johnson was able to hit at will and bloody his face, Flynn resorted to attempting to headbutt the champion's jaw. A local policeman entered the ring in the ninth round and stopped the fight. Johnson was declared the winner when Flynn was disqualified. The fight was such a debacle that between the hostility over a black man pummeling a Caucasian and the general attitude towards boxing, Congress passed a law that forbade the interstate shipment of boxing films. Johnson hinted that he was tired of training for prize fighting and instead opened a splashy cabaret in Chicago, the Café des Champions. He laughed off his and his wife's arraignment on the smuggling charges and even got arrested again for pummeling his black chauffeur when the man refused to tell him what he had said to the grand jury investigating the necklace. Johnson's cafe was jammed every night, and the champion enjoyed himself while his wife languished in an upstairs apartment, overcome with depression over her life in a social purgatory where she was shunned by both blacks and whites. Johnson suggested that she travel with a friend back to Las Vegas, New Mexico, to stay in a spa and get some sunshine. But when the day arrived for her departure, she was unwilling to travel. Later that evening, with Johnson supposedly exchanging her railroad tickets, she said goodnight to her two maids, locked her bedroom door, and shot herself in the head. She died in a hospital a few hours later. Although Etta was buried in splendor, Johnson would quickly take up with 19-year-old Lucille Cameron, Lucille's mother, Mrs. F. Cameron Falconet, was displeased to say the least, and when her distraught and incendiary interview appeared on the front page of Chicago's newspapers, official white Chicago was outraged. Lucille's mother had claimed that when she begged Johnson to leave her daughter alone and let her return with her mother to Milwaukee, he laughed at her and claimed he could get any woman, even her. The police had Cameron Falconet swear out a complaint against her daughter for disorderly conduct and had Johnson deliver her to the city jail. Johnson had the misfortune of getting involved in this incident in the midst of a citywide crackdown on the widespread and open prostitution industry that was rumored to be populated with numerous young girls who became white slaves, forced into the numerous brothels of Chicago. In 1909, the federal government had passed the Mann Act, which prohibited the transportation of women for the purpose of prostitution, but it was so loosely written as to be used in just about any instance of perceived impropriety involving sexual misconduct. Not coincidentally, the author of the act, Congressman James Mann, was a congressman from Illinois. While the feds began an investigation of Johnson under the act and kept Lucille locked up as a material witness, local police arrested Johnson for Lucille's abduction per the request of her mother. Johnson posted bail immediately, 
but public antagonism increased further when an interview of Etta Dorier's mother indicated that it was her Christian duty to aid Mrs. Cameron Falconet to prevent Lucille's marriage to the fighter and that he had tormented her daughter to suicide. Suddenly, Jack Johnson was practically radioactive in both the black and white community. Even though Lucille Cameron refused to give him up to a grand jury, a federal investigation continued in the hopes of identifying other women willing to testify. The city of Chicago shut down Johnson's cafe, refusing to renew his liquor license and literally nailing the doors shut. It didn't take long for federal investigators to track down Bell Schreiber. An anonymous tip led them to her current place of employment in Washington, D.C., she was bitter and willing to give very specific information about her interaction with Johnson, especially information about his financial support of her brothel in Chicago, which conveniently occurred after the passage of the Mann Act. After seven separate counts of Mann Act violations resulted in indictments, Judge Keenshaw Mountain Landis issued a warrant for Johnson's arrest. Landis, the future commissioner of baseball appointed to clean up the corruption mess of the 1919 Black Sox scandal, already had a reputation as a hard-nosed jurist. He set bail at the astronomical sum of $30,000. It took Jack Johnson a week to get out of jail. Lucille Cameron ultimately was also released from custody, and the couple immediately got married. Jack Johnson initially believed that his wealth would insulate him from the government, but ultimately his optimism faded. He pled guilty to the smuggling charge and was allowed to pay a fine. On May 5, 1913, his trial over the Mann Act violations began in a federal court. The government's case was simple. Johnson had aided and assisted Bell Schreiber into committing crimes involving prostitution and crimes against nature. Bell Schreiber testified that setting up a brothel in Chicago was completely Jack Johnson's idea and that he had frequented the establishment on numerous occasions. Johnson's defense was simple. He denied everything and maintained that any money he gave her was because she was unemployed and needed help. He especially denied beating her or any other female and making any money as a result of prostitution. The jury would deliberate for less than two hours before convicting Johnson on all seven counts. On June 4, 1913, he was sentenced to a year in jail and a $1,000 fine. But Johnson's defiant nature would not allow the government to have the last word. A meticulously planned escape to France via Montreal went off without a hitch, and Johnson and his wife settled in Paris. He scraped by with the usual vaudeville appearances that even featured him dancing the tango with his wife. But these efforts provided only a modest amount of money in light of his expenses, so Johnson reluctantly signed to fight two bouts. The first, against journeyman Jim Johnson, was only notable in that it was the first heavyweight title fight between two black boxers. Johnson broke his forearm early in the fight, and the lackluster contest was declared a draw in front of jeering Parisian spectators. His next bout against Frank Moran was described by the New York Times as positively the poorest bout ever staged as a championship contest. Broke, Johnson reverted to behavior from his less prosperous youth. He skipped town and went to St. Petersburg at the invitation of an American black impresario who thought he could use him in a vaudeville production. Again, Johnson's timing was bad. When World War I broke out, he was asked to leave by the Russian government and was forced back to France and then to England. Early 1915 found Jack Johnson in Cuba by way of Argentina. Desperate for money, he now pursued a large payday with any American willing to fight him. He was also homesick and hoping to negotiate a return to the United States. But what fighter would generate the kind of excitement and challenge that Johnson was looking for? Promoters sought out Johnson in Cuba and offered several different fight options. 
with the current crop of white heavyweights described by one sports writer as an awful herd of harmless elephants, the challenge would be to pick a fighter that the public would believe to be a serious opponent. Johnson eventually agreed to fight Jess Willard. It wasn't so much that Willard had much of a boxing reputation. He had not even started his boxing career until the age of 28. But it was his physical size and remarkable strength that stood out. Six foot seven, 230 pounds, Willard from rural Pottawatomie County, Kansas, was known as the Pottawatomie Giant. Even after getting a late start in his career, Willard almost retired in 1913 when he knocked out a boxer who subsequently died of a cerebral hemorrhage. He was the type of physically impressive white hope that would excite the public. Promoter Jack Curley not only got the Cuban government to agree to allow the fight to proceed, he promised Jack Johnson that he would approach the U.S. government to attempt to get him back into the country without having to go to jail. Unlike Willard, who relocated to Cuba for the April 5th fight and began training in earnest, Johnson spent more time at the racetrack, believing that Willard was not good enough to beat him. Reporters flocked to Havana from all over the world, and interest in the scheduled 45-round fight began to take off, the public sensing that Johnson might be past his prime. On April 5th, as many as 20,000 spectators crowded into Oriente Racetrack, the temperature climbing to over 100 degrees by fight time. Johnson predicted he would embarrass the challenger, and in the early rounds he took the fight to Willard, scoring at will. The challenger seemed too slow for the champion, and Johnson piled up the points. But as the fight progressed, the pace slowed, and Willard, who towered over Johnson, began to wear him down. By the 21st round, Johnson was still scoring, but he had not hurt Willard, and his usually confident demeanor had disappeared. There were no smiles or taunts, as Johnson's 37 years and grueling lifestyle seemed to be catching up with him. In the 25th round, Willard landed a punch to the body that made Johnson gasp audibly, and the challenger was visibly the quicker, fresher fighter. When the bell rang for the 26th round, Willard quickly hit Johnson with another right to the body that had Johnson desperately trying to clinch, but the challenger shrugged him off and fainted for a few seconds before unleashing a pulverizing right that landed flush on the jaw. Johnson began falling to the canvas and tried to grab Willard unsuccessfully. He landed on his back, both of his arms extended over his face as the referee counted him out. The fight was over. The heavyweight championship of the world had changed hands. Both the crowd and the national press were jubilant, crowing that Jess Willard had restored boxing to normalcy. A dejected Johnson was also told that the government would not negotiate over his return to the United States. He could come back to the States, but he would be sent to prison. Johnson would spend the next five years in Spain and Mexico, boxing exhibitions and making occasional theatrical appearances, his expenses exceeding any income. Most of the time, he and his wife survived by pawning jewelry and skipping out on bills that piled up wherever they went. His mother had died in Chicago in 1918, and his inability to attend her funeral was deeply disturbing. By July of 1920, Johnson had had enough of this vagabond life. On July 20th, he surrendered to U.S. Marshals in Tijuana and was transported by train from Los Angeles to Chicago. His legal appeals were all ultimately denied, and on September 19, 1920, Johnson became an inmate at Leavenworth Federal Penitentiary. Although he would be treated well and given privileges not enjoyed by other prisoners, Johnson's plea for early parole would be ignored. With time off for good behavior, he was released on July 9, 1921. Johnson told reporters that he would like to fight the new champion, Jack Dempsey. Jess Willard had not proved very durable. In four years after beating Johnson, Willard had fought one fight, instead making money with vaudeville tours and personal appearances. When he finally met the ferocious Dempsey, Willard was knocked down seven times in the first round and refused to come out for the fourth. 
Normally, a boxer quitting on a stool would be met by public scorn, but Willard actually gained a great deal of respect in defeat. As he sat in his corner, his ribs, his jaw, and cheekbone were broken. Several of his teeth were lying on the canvas, and several close-up photos of his face during the fight showed it to already be a lumpy, bloody mess. Reality set in when Jack Johnson went to New York and attempted to set up a fight with Dempsey. Both Dempsey's manager and Tex Rickard, now America's most powerful boxing promoter, publicly opposed the idea, indicating that the heavyweight championship would return to its segregated ways. While Johnson's fortunes foundered, Tex Rickard would only prosper, building a new Madison Square Garden in 1925 and operating a hockey franchise there as part of a new league. He named the team himself after the legendary Texas lawmen of his youth, and today they still play as one of the NHL's original six teams, the New York Rangers. Jack Johnson did not enjoy any prosperity during the Roaring Twenties. Lucille divorced him for infidelity in 1924. He immediately took up with another Caucasian woman named Irene Pinot, who he married a year later. He continued to box into the 30s, but even he referred to these contests as exhibitions. His last fight in Wichita, Kansas was such a farce that he and his opponent were banned permanently from fighting in the state of Kansas. His 1927 autobiography did not sell well, and he was forced to declare bankruptcy. He opened a nightclub in Los Angeles that failed, had some bit parts in Hollywood, and returned to Europe where he was held in high regard. When nothing panned out overseas, he returned to the U.S. and hoped to get involved in managing Joe Lewis, the most promising black heavyweight since Johnson had been the champion. But Lewis's handlers privately told Johnson that his arrogant ways and insistence on involving himself with white women were the reason a black heavyweight like Lewis would have difficulty getting a shot at the title. From that moment on, Johnson would publicly belittle Lewis, a perspective that created hostility, even in the black community, who also disliked Johnson's refusal to give a legitimate black contender a shot at the title. By the late 30s, Johnson was reduced to appearing at Hubert's Museum and Flea Circus in Times Square for $35 a week. On Monday, June 9, 1946, Jack Johnson was returning to New York by automobile from a stint in a Texas tent show. These were the types of appearances that he essentially survived on in the last 25 years of his life. He was near the town of Franklinton, North Carolina, driving his Lincoln Zephyr at over 75 miles an hour when he lost control and hit a telephone pole. His assistant was thrown from the car and survived. Jack Johnson died in a hospital three hours later. The assistant, Fred Hooper, said that Johnson was agitated because they had been forced to eat in the rear of a diner when they stopped for dinner earlier near Raleigh. Johnson was 68 years old. Jack Johnson's funeral was held in a Baptist church in his mother's old neighborhood and attended by 2,500 spectators and thousands more milling outside. He was buried next to Ed Durier in Chicago's Graceland Cemetery, resting place of some of the city's most prestigious citizens, including Potter Palmer, Cyrus McCormick, and Marshall Field. He had remained married for nearly 25 years to his third wife, Irene Pinot, who had remained quietly and utterly devoted to him. Typically, at the burial ceremony, a reporter asked her what she loved most about her husband. I loved him because of his courage. He faced the world unafraid. There wasn't anybody or anything he feared. Thank you for listening to this podcast about Jack Johnson. Much of the information for this podcast came from the books Unforgivable Blackness by Jeffrey C. Ward and 
Papa Jack, Jack Johnson and the Era of White Hopes by Randy Roberts. There are also additional photographs, bibliographical and musical information at someveryfamouspeople.com. If you have enjoyed this presentation, please like us at our Facebook page, Some Very Famous People, and follow us on Twitter at Philip D. Gibbons. Also rate us on iTunes, and if you have the time, leave a brief review. A link is provided at the website.